National Security and Science Nonfiction, today, Wednesday, June 12th. This is The World. I'm Marco Werman. After all the NSA surveillance revelations, we ask, are we living in Orwell's 1984 dystopia? Sci-fi writer Cory Doctorow gives us his take, but don't ask him to predict the future. I don't think science fiction writers predict. I think science fiction writers who try to predict are like drug dealers who sample their own product. Also, the 65 megawatts per hour needed to run the NSA's new data center in Utah. That's the equivalent, on average, of how much electricity that would be drawn by a town of about 65,000 people. And later, Iran's about to hold a presidential election, but the biggest dilemma for some Iranians is not which candidate to vote for, but whether to vote at all. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Edward Snowden told a newspaper in Hong Kong today that he's neither a traitor nor a hero. I'm an American, said Snowden. As you know, he's the man behind the leaked information about the NSA's phone and Internet surveillance programs. His leaks have raised concerns about Big Brother, as in George Orwell's 1984. This is one man's alarmed vision of the future. A future which he felt might, with such dangerous ease, be brought about. The trailer from the film adaptation of 1984 there, it's all about a dystopian future when the state sees all and knows all. The novel's even seen a burst of sales in recent days. So is this what Orwell predicted? Cory Doctorow is a journalist and science fiction writer. I think it's dangerous to call Orwell a predictor. I don't think science fiction writers predict. I think science fiction writers who try to predict are like drug dealers who sample their own product. What I think Orwell did and what Orwell does is warn. And Orwell warned that technology had the power to shift the relationship between the individual and the state. And that technology was giving the edge to governments and to powerful institutions over less powerful institutions and over individuals. What Orwell didn't see was where technology, by dint of making it cheaper for us to work together, gave enormous power to groups of people to build things as complicated and wonderful as, you know, say, Wikipedia. So, you know, I think that we didn't heed Orwell's warning and we allowed ourselves to be lulled by really dumb arguments like if people choose perhaps unwisely, to give a lot of information to Facebook, doesn't that mean that um, spooks should be allowed to harvest as much of that information from Facebook as they want without a warrant? What do you think? For the record, I don't use Facebook, and I don't think you should either. Why not? But Well, because I think Facebook is a Skinner box designed to teach you to undervalue your privacy. You make a disclosure now, and then months or years later, in a totally different context, that disclosure comes back and bites you in the butt. Mm. It's like trying to learn to hit a ball by swinging the bat and then turning around and running away as fast as you can before you see whether the bat connected with the ball. And then a couple of years later, someone will come to you in your living room and say, that was a really good hit. (laughs) And there's lots of stuff like that. But because there's this long fuse between action and consequence there, it's hard to practice it and get good at it. So with programs like PRISM, If we make good decisions about our privacy, we weaken their security. Are you saying that the state really does support things like Facebook and and the social media, that they like these uh, kind of platforms for getting information? 
one of the things that apologists for this kind of uh, technology say is no one's listening in on your phone call. It's an algorithm that's listening in on it. And the problem is that algorithms are unaccountable, right? That some piece of software that someone's written that you'll never be allowed to see or interrogate has drawn a conclusion about your life that could have profound effects on you. I mean, already your social media history is being used in some cases to determine your eligibility for a mortgage. Right. But, I mean, yesterday you know, we actually spoke about how big data, you know, sucks up all this information. And the Philip K. Dick novel, The Minority Report, kept running through my mind, you know, where people are accused of what they're predicted to do before they actually do it. Um, it it's scary, and we're not there yet, but what do you think science fiction can tell us about the present? You kind of work in the near future. I think that what science fiction does tell you a lot about is what we are anxious about or hopeful about in respect of our technology. And for me, my novels often involve people who have discovered problems with technology, ways that technology is being used to limit individual freedom, who use technology to push back against that. Mm. And so my books often feature protest movements or civil society groups or activist groups that are energized by technology and use technology, but are who are also pushing back against the misuse of technology. You know, the debate about the future often used to revolve around Orwell versus Huxley, uh, Algis Huxley's novel, Brave New World, in, mm -hmm. in, in which he posited that humans in the future won't put up a fight because we're happy enough due to technological distractions. You know, Soma, Huxley's feel-good drug could now be seen, I guess, as a combination of fast food and Facebook. Do you see it that way? Oh, I think that people who thought that it would either be Orwell or Huxley lack the imagination to anticipate that it might be Orwell and Huxley you know, why choose when you can have both of them? <laughs> and I think that technology is a race between people whose instinct is authoritarian or deferential to authority and who see in technology the power to take away freedom and people who see in technology the power to work with their friends to guarantee freedom. And that race is one that is a long and old race. But the difference now is that you have an establishment that is enormously powerful and well-coordinated. And then you have a kind of citizenry who've lacked that coordination almost entirely. And the technology gives the establishment more coordination. So it makes them more effective. But it gives the citizenry coordination where there was none. I'm a pessimist because I think that if we don't do anything... The power of the internet to take away freedom makes Orwell look like an optimist. But I'm an optimist because I think technology has given us the mechanism by which we can push back and use technology to build a better world that's more cooperative and fairer. Corey Doctorow, great to speak with you. Thanks a lot. Not at all. Thanks. Massive amounts of data, massive servers to hold it, new words like zettabyte that describe the hulking successors to terabytes. So how much energy does it take to store all this big data? John Kumi studies energy policy at Stanford University. So this new Utah data center, John, uh, that the NSA is building will require one and a half million gallons of water a day to keep the servers cool. What's known about the NSA's data farms and how much energy they use? So National Geographic reported that the new data center will use about 65 megawatts. And that's the equivalent, on average, of how much electricity that would be drawn by a town of about 65,000 people. So when you get your electric bill, it's measured in kilowatt hours. So if you have a 100-watt bulb that goes for 10 hours, that's one kilowatt hour. So a 65-megawatt power plant or a 65-megawatt data center will use in one hour 65-megawatt hours. Wow. Okay. So uh, I assume you think that's a lot. Well, 
it's as much as some large industrial plants. It's as much as a you know mid-sized city. But but you have to put this in context because those facilities allow us to do lots of other things in the society that we couldn't do otherwise. Sure. So how does that compare to say commercial data farms like Google's well-known data farms that are popping well, so, up everywhere? So Google, Google, Apple, Facebook, the cloud computing providers, they have data centers that are also in the tens of megawatts. 65 megawatts would be a very large one. And and how much are we each individually responsible for using energy when we say we just Google something on, on a smartphone? Aren't we forcing a server somewhere to spin up in order to give us the answers? We are, but it's a trivial amount of electricity for each Google search. So the, the most important thing to keep in mind is that the data centers that we hear the most about from Google and Facebook and Apple and Microsoft, those actually lead the industry in efficiency. And they're not the, the main issue. They also have invested a lot in renewable power. There, there's a set of data centers in companies whose primary business is not computing. And that would be you know, the ma- a manufacturing company or a retail company. And those are the data centers that use by far the most electricity and are the least efficient. But you don't hear about them. You don't, they don't get pressure to, to improve the efficiency of their facilities. And just for comparison, what, what industry uses even more uh, energy than data centers? Uh, so, so people sometimes compare data center emissions to the emissions from uh, airline industry. And they're the ones that I think that we can do a whole lot better in terms of efficiency. How does this compare to years ago when we used to use reams of paper photocopying things? Is there an environmental benefit as well to taking a lot of paper out of the mix? Yeah, so there's a bunch of different ways that you can improve environmental performance using information technology. One way is to substitute you know, information for material goods. The examples I like to, to point to are driving to the store to pick up a CD. Instead, we download it. Uh, and we've, we've studied that, and the best case for buying the CD versus the worst case for the downloads, it was still a 40%. Saving. So moving mm. bits instead of moving atoms is, is generally a better way to improve the environment. John Kumi, a research fellow at Stanford Steyer Taylor Center for Energy Policy and Finance, thanks for your time. My pleasure. Like data, everything seems to be getting bigger. Box stores stock more stuff than ever. Global trade gets bigger. Demand then goes up for more stuff. And to get it here, the ships grow bigger. So big that it's pushing some countries like Nicaragua to think bigger than they ever have. Real big. The world's William Troop explains. Before there was a Panama Canal, Nicaragua was a hot contender to host a waterway that would link the Atlantic and Pacific Oceans. Both the United States and France toyed with the idea in the 19th century. But Panama got it thanks to a basic geographic advantage. It's less than 50 miles across Panama from the Atlantic side to the Pacific. It's closer to 150 miles across Nicaragua. Digging through Panama was cheaper, but things look a bit different now. Global trade is expanded at a rapid rate, and the route between Asia and the Americas in both directions is becoming increasingly important for manufactured goods and bulk commodities. That's Ronald McLean Abaroa, a spokesman for the Hong Kong-based HKND Group. The company has signed an agreement with Nicaragua's government to finance the estimated $40 billion it would take to build a new canal through Nicaragua. There is a growing demand for a canal that can accommodate larger ships that exceed the dimensions of the Panama Canal. The transport of bulk commodities between the Americas and Asia demands enormous ships, 
such as ore carriers and super tankers that simply can't pass through Panama Canal. The canal is just not big enough for those ships. The Panama Canal is expanding right now, but not enough for the newest massive container ships out there, and Nicaragua's proposed new waterway would accommodate them. The agreement gives HKND rights over the final canal route for 50 years initially, with the option for another 50 later on. The proposed canal has its critics in Nicaragua, though. Some question the need to hand sovereignty over Nicaraguan soil to a company from China. Also, there are six possible routes for the canal, and five of them would have those enormous tankers traversing Lake Nicaragua. We have to think of Lake Nicaragua as a last oasis, says environmentalist Jaime Inzer. He says the canal could impact the country's water supply just as it comes under stress from climate change. Others question the project's feasibility. They say Lake Nicaragua is shallow and filled with silt, and that dredging a deep passage through it would be not just expensive, but possibly futile as well. Currents in the lake are constantly moving the mud around, water specialist Salvador Montenegro told a TV interviewer recently. He described currents that can quickly fill any man-made hole. HKND has promised to conduct an environmental impact study, but the government of President Daniel Ortega isn't waiting for that. It's fast-tracking the canal bill in the National Assembly, which could approve it as early as tomorrow. And Ortega is also touting the potential economic benefits. He says building the canal could create 40,000 new jobs over 11 years. The Hong Kong company would also pay Nicaragua $10 million a year, plus a share of the new canal's profits. That could mean serious cash for one of the poorest countries in the world. Ortega's wife and presidential spokeswoman, Rosario Murillo, says that money could have a huge impact on people's lives. Projects like this, she told the TV station, could mean prosperity for Nicaragua, a prosperity that has eluded most Nicaraguans throughout their history. For The World, this is William Troop. By the way, you can see a map of the six proposed canal routes through Nicaragua. That's at theworld.org. Still to come on The World, Usain Bolt is fast, but he can't run as fast as this guy on PRI, Public Radio International. The World is brought to you by PRI with help from Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation, a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who make a difference in their communities. More on how nonprofits can earn a grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. What you're about to hear is an unusual and sad story. On a cold September morning last year, residents of a leafy West London suburb were woken by the sound of a loud impact in their street. In the road was the body of a man. The then unidentified man had been a stowaway. He had hidden himself in the landing gear of a plane from Angola to London and fallen to his death when the gear was lowered on the approach to London. Like thousands of others each year, he had been seeking a way of reaching the West in search of a better life. And like many others, he lost his life doing so. The BBC's Rob Walker has been investigating the story and he's produced a documentary about the case. Uh, these stowaways in the wheel wells of airplanes, Rob, it's pretty common, sadly. But in the case of this man, it wasn't apparent how he ended up in the road at first. How did it emerge that he had been a stowaway? 
Yeah, that's right. I mean, when he first appeared in the street on a Sunday morning last September, people initially thought either he's been murdered or he's a victim of a, of a traffic accident. But then it became pretty clear that neither of those possible scenarios added up. Now, the police managed to uncover this man's identity uh, and to locate some of the people who knew him. But uh, it wasn't easy. I mean, you followed this. What, what was the, the trail uh, of getting to uh, this man's identity like? What happened was that the police found uh, in his uh, pocket a phone and they called the numbers on that phone. Surprisingly, one of those phone numbers was a number in Geneva. It turned out that this was his former employer, a lady called Jessica Hunt, and she'd employed the stowaway when he was working in South Africa. Right. So uh, he falls in London. They find a woman who employed him. She's living in Geneva, but had employed him in Cape Town, South Africa. Uh, So who is this man? So his name is is Jose Matado. We know now that uh, he was aged 26. Sadly, it was actually his 26th birthday when he fell from the plane over London. We know that uh, he was originally from Mozambique, not Angola, although that's where he he took the plane from, and that he moved to South Africa. He worked for a time in South Africa. Um, He found this job with her, and and she described to me a little bit about, uh, about what he was like. Joseph was a really nice man. He was a really good person. I miss him. I just thought, oh Joseph, what have you done? Why did you get into that plane? Why weren't you more patient? Rob, did uh, Jessica give any sense of, uh, of what Joseph wanted when she knew him in South Africa? Was he really eager to leave and go to the West? What did she talk? What did she say about that? Yeah, what she said was that he, he was sort of very keen to get a job and he saw getting to Europe as the means to get a better job for himself and, you know, provide some means of assisting his, his family who didn't, uh, you know, didn't have much money. Uh, when she said what happened was that when she finished living in South Africa, she returned to, to Europe, returned to Switzerland. And she actually sent him some some money to try and help him get a visa, get papers to come to Europe. Unfortunately, she said that that money he took and paid to someone in Mozambique who swindled him, took the money, didn't give him the papers he was hoping to get. And so at that point, he then took the decision to travel back to South Africa and then from South Africa overland to Angola. And we know from phone records that once he got to Angola, he called his former employer, uh, Jessica, to say that uh, he'd made it to Angola. And at that point, um, she didn't have more money to, to give to him. Um, and she was hoping that she'd hear from him in a little while, hopefully when he'd found somewhere to live, got some kind of job in Angola. But we know that that, that final call between them took place just three days before he, he got into the plane. And eventually she didn't hear from him again. It was the, it was the British police, of course, that she heard from when they called to say mm. um, what had happened to him. Do we know how high an altitude Joseph fell from in London? Uh, I'm not sure exactly. I mean, obviously, the the, the plane travels at 35,000 feet or so, and then it comes into land. What normally happens in these cases is that the stowaways become unconscious during the course of the flight because of the cold and the lack of oxygen. And so when the wheels are lowered, they're obviously not not able to hold on to anything. And that's normally uh, the, the point at which they fall. You know, we always hear about the people who stow away like this and die. Do do any survive this kind of journey in the wheel well? Yes, I mean, extraordinarily. I mean, if we take the cases into into London, if you look since the late 90s, there have been around a dozen 
cases in total. Now, extraordinarily, two people have actually survived. Uh, one person survived a couple of years back because he was coming on a relatively short-haul flight from Vienna in Austria. And as luck would have it for him, there was bad weather, so that plane flew at low altitude. Uh, and so he he survived the flight of two hours or so. But there was an even more extraordinary case, though, Marco. If we go back to 1996, two brothers stowed away on a flight from India all the way to Heathrow. When the plane was coming in to land, uh, one of the brothers, when the wheels were lowered, one of the brothers sadly fell out and died. But extraordinarily, the other brother survived and was found on the on the tarmac at Heathrow. And the story he told was that when they were trying to get to, to UK in this way, they paid someone in India who told them that if they managed to get into the undercarriage, there'd be a door in the undercarriage through which they could move into the rest of the of the aircraft. And he said in interviews at the time that that's why he did it. And of course, that's completely untrue, that there is no there is no door. I've, I've actually been myself into the undercarriage of an aircraft to try and get an idea of, of what it's like in there. And, and once you're in, obviously, you're you're sealed in. You yourself climbed into the wheel well to see what that was like? Yes, that's right. That was at a, an airfield an hour or so from, from London. It was a, a disused Boeing 747. What struck me doing that was that um, when you approach underneath the aircraft, it looks, that space actually looks quite big. What happens, though, is after takeoff, the wheels, those huge wheels come up. And what you can't know when you climb in, unless you're you know familiar with aircraft, is where those wheels go once they move up inside the undercarriage. And there have been cases where, sadly, stowaways have been crushed or indeed burnt by those wheels as they come up because, you know, you're basically having to chance where you're going to wedge yourself. I mean, the, the, the actual sort of sense of being in there, I have to say, was even during the day, it's quite claustrophobic because even when it's light outside, it's pretty dark in there. So you can imagine someone like the, the case we've been following, Jose Matada, doing that at night. And the stowaways normally do stow away on planes at night. You can imagine how you know, awful it would be. You're there in the dark, you know, the noise, the vibrations approaching approaching takeoff. And at one poignant detail of this case, we know that Jose Matada, the only precaution he took from that cold and extremes was uh, a couple of bits of tissue paper he crammed in his ears either before or during uh, takeoff. Um, apart from that, he had no other precautions. He had a pair of sneakers on, a pair of jeans and a, and a thin hooded top. Mm. And so you just kind of assume in his case that... He had hardly any idea of, of, of what was to come. The BBC's Rob Walker telling us the sad tale of a man from Mozambique who stowed away on a plane to London and did not survive. For more information about Rob's documentary, The Man Who Fell to Earth, just go to theworld.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International. I'm Marco Werman. Ahead, Greece shuts down state TV and radio and fires the employees. This independent journalist compares the Greek state broadcaster to a certain familiar American institution. It's kind of like the public radio in the United States. It produces the best possible programs, but there's not a lot of people who want to see them. PRI's The World is supported by Medtronic, now accepting nominations for the Bakken Invitation a global celebration of patients helped by medical technology who are making a difference in their communities. Learn how nonprofit organizations may earn a $20,000 grant at liveongiveon.org. I'm Marco Werman, and this is The World, a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH Boston. Hey, did you hear the big news? The Eurozone crisis is over. 
French President Francois Hollande said as much a few days ago on a state visit to Japan. Well, apparently Greece didn't get the memo. Last night, the Greek government made a cost-cutting move to try to right the still-beleaguered economy. It pulled the plug on the Hellenic Broadcasting Corporation, or ERT as it's known, but it didn't stay dark for long. Here's the world's Clark Boyd. Late last night, a Greek government spokesman, a man who had once worked at ERT, called the state broadcaster a waste and a scandal. It was time, he said, to shut it down. All of it. The move was made real in the wee hours of the morning, mid-sentence. And just like that, journalist Katerina Ianadou and more than 2,500 others at ERT were out of work. We gave our lives, our souls, for a proper news station, Ianadu said. She continued, we haven't been paid since last November, and now they're throwing us out just like that. It's a disgrace. And for many Greek viewers... It was a shock to see the black screen, you know. Lamprini Thomas worked as a journalist in Greece for nearly 30 years. Like many, she cut her teeth at ERT. She admits the state broadcaster has had its problems. But for Greeks, she says, ERT is hugely symbolic. It began radio broadcasting in the late 30s and almost immediately became part of Greek history. Actually, there are moments that are written in our history, like the last message of the person who spoke to Greeks when the Germans took Athens, 1941, who said to the people that from now on, this is not Greek radio, you're going to listen to lies. ERT television began broadcasting in the 1960s. Thoma says her mom remembers how the station was taken over during the military junta in the 1970s. Plenty of black screens in those days, she says. Until the early 1990s, ERT had no competition from the private sector. Now there are a number of private broadcasters. Tastes, Thoma says, have changed, but ERT hasn't. It's kind of like the public radio in the United States. It produces the best possible programs but there's not a lot of people who want to see them. But last night's cutting of ERT's signal does have many Greeks upset, and some are taking action. Thoma works for The Press Project, an independent organization of Greek journalists. The Press Project heard that ERT journalists and technicians were still broadcasting, even though the signal had been cut. So the project grabbed the ERT feed from the satellites. From the satellites, the the Press Project took it to... Web TV took it to our side so that people can follow what's going on, you know, can find it, can see what the people uh, working at ERT are telling. And so ERT continues to go out, intermittently at least, as a webcast. A few other press organizations are helping it stay online right now. Many journalists in Greece have gone on strike in solidarity with ERT, and angry protesters have gathered outside of ERT's headquarters. Anchor Emanuela Argiti says she isn't surprised. People trust the voice and the picture that we see through ERT, and I guess that explains why so many people, that crowd, have gathered in the courtyard of ERT. They trust us as a democratical institution. Now, here's the odd thing. Everyone in Greece understands that the budget needs to be cut, and that those cuts start with the bloated public sector. But ERT ran a significant surplus last year. It's financed by a license fee paid by Greek citizens. Yanis Varoufakis is a Greek economist. Besides the whiff of totalitarianism that was evident when all of a sudden the plug was pulled, (laughs) the economics makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. 
ERT looks set to become a political chess piece in Greece in the days ahead. Opposition parties are calling the closure a coup d'etat, and even the ruling coalition is divided over the decision. Greece's prime minister today said his government would create a new state broadcaster, one he vowed that would be transparent and not waste public money. For The World, this is Clark Boyd. There's plenty of political dissent in Iran, too. On Friday, Iranians go to the polls to elect a new president. Iranian journalist Shirin Jafari is based here in Boston, and she's been joining us regularly to unpack the elections in Iran. She says, as of this week, the candidates on the ballot are all conservatives, with the exception of one moderate. His name is Hassan Rouhani. He headed the nuclear negotiations in in the late 1990s, and he considers himself a moderate and not a reformist. But the reformists have been consolidating um, over him. It seems like now they have a candidate. And what's been happening lately is that people have been getting energized and excited about this because before we thought this is going to be an election between same sort of candidates, uh, more uh, conservative candidates. But right now, there seems to be not exactly a reformist, but a more moderate uh, voice in the game. Right. So a moderate candidate, Rouhani, gets support from reformists. Is that a sign that he might actually win? It's really difficult to say. Um, All the powers have been trying to avoid having a reformist in the game. And already what we see coming out from the newspapers in Iran, more conservative newspapers in Iran, is that they have been starting to attack him. And also the fact that he is in the game doesn't mean he's going to have a lot of support. When Iranians head to the polls this Friday, what's going to be the most important issues on their minds? I think what you hear most from coming out from Iran is the economic situation and also the sanctions. The sanctions have been hitting hard. Uh, Iranian people are, are having trouble. The economy is in shambles. And you hear also that in the talks of the candidates, they they have been focusing on this a lot in the debates, in the television um, debates. And it, what it looks like is that the economy is going to be the main issue on their mind. Now, these sanctions, of course, uh, we remember they were imposed by the West uh, and the United States uh, to clamp down on Iran's nuclear program. The idea of sanctions, a little abstract. Give us one example of how they affect ordinary people in Iran. So an example that I can give, I was talking to a pharmacist in Tehran uh, last week, and she was telling me a few months ago there was a shortage of drugs. Um, Some specific drugs such as cancer drugs, um, hemophilia, and others, um, people just could not find them. There was a shortage. And this is because the Central Bank of Iran and some other major banks are sanctioned, and uh, companies cannot pay for the drugs. Now, back in 2009, a lot of people took the streets after uh, the elections, part of that Green Revolution. A lot of people felt it was a bogus election, demanded the removal of President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad. How are they feeling about this election, given what happened uh, four years ago? Well, a lot of people are thinking about not voting. They say, we're going to stay home. When there's nobody who represents us. We're not going to vote. There are others who say, this is our chance. We can make a change. Not voting for anybody would mean a, bad, a worse situation. And we should somehow get in the race, vote, be active and not stay at home. So there's this sort of two-sided feeling right now in Iran. And um, people 
still debating. There's only two days left, but I hear a lot of people still debating whether to vote or not. So following this vote, Shireen, what's likely to happen to Iran's attitudes on certain policies or Israel toward the West, uh, nuclear policy? I mean, if it's a moderate or a kind of a, uh, an analogous person to Mahmoud Ahmadinejad, uh, will anything really change? Well, that's it's been interesting. All the television debates, candidates have been opening up about what their plans would be for the nuclear negotiations and all that. What was interesting was that everybody was um, complaining about how Iran has handled the nuclear issue so far. So I don't know if this is just to get the votes or that's going to change afterwards. But um, the fact that this is mentioned on state TV, on live debates, it's interesting. And um, the other thing is that you know, the supreme leader is the final decider on these things. We've seen this many times. People coming in as president, they, they say one thing, the supreme leader says another thing. So it's always difficult to see if they would also have an effect as a president. And what happens to Ahmadinejad uh, come uh, Saturday morning? I think Ahmadinejad has recently been very quiet. It's very interesting comparing what he was saying before that he has documents he's going to show off and he, he's going to reveal things. He's been he's going to um, be a whistleblower. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe um, he's been really quiet recently. We haven't heard from him. Um, I don't know what his plans are, but the fact that he's quiet is interesting. Journalist Sharin Jaffery, who's been speaking with us at the World regularly about Iran. Thank you. Thank you, Marco. On the other side of the Persian Gulf from Iran, Saudi Arabia. And in Saudi Arabia right now, immigration woes. Different from immigration woes here, the kingdom has given its undocumented immigrants until July 3rd to get their papers in order or risk deportation. We're talking about millions of people. Nearly half of Saudi Arabia's labor force is made up of foreign workers. Authorities issued the order to free up jobs in the private sector for the kingdom's underemployed nationals. It's essentially thrown the entire foreign uh, labor sector into complete chaos. Adam Kugel is a Middle East researcher with Human Rights Watch. Really, the reasons for this go back to the way in which Saudi Arabia regulates its foreign workforce to begin with. First of all, before coming to Saudi Arabia, workers often are forced to pay exorbitant recruitment fees to agencies in order to come to Saudi Arabia. Uh, Once they get there, they are subjected to the strictures of the kafala system. And under the Kampala system, workers are tied specifically to one employer who they are forced to work for. They can't change jobs if they are being exploited or if their conditions are not good. This employer often, in cases that Human Rights Watch has documented, uh, confiscates workers' uh, documents and passports. And then Saudi Arabia in general, their, their labor dispute mechanisms are very inefficient and they take way too much time uh, and resources on the part of the person making a complaint. So a lot of times workers don't even try to take their employers to court for non-payment of wages, other things like that. What happens on July 3rd? And is this just going to get more chaotic leading up until then? We're talking millions of people. Well, what the Saudis had originally done in early April was they had started sort of mass deportations and they had been trying to arrest foreign workers with incorrect paperwork or without residency. They put a stop to that after the sort of the chaos started and they, and they announced the grace period. By all indications, if they resume the the deportations, it's going to create a huge headache for foreign workers. I mean, it's going to put many of them on the run from the police. In Saudi Arabia, one of the most exploitative things about the way that they uh, regulate the foreign workers present on Saudi soil is that they, they force them to procure an exit visa from their employer before leaving the country. Walk us through the story of someone 
who's negotiated this this difficult business? Yeah, so essentially if a worker comes into the country, say, and they work for an employer, the employer confiscates their passport. Uh, because of the conditions they're subjected to, they often will, will flee to a different employer uh, and work uh, under the table or work on the black market. And they could go on like that for years and have sort of incomplete paperwork or not have residency and just continue working that way. Then when you know this announcement comes and they have to correct their residency status, even if they can get an employer to agree to be their sponsor, they still can't switch to that employer uh, without their initial sponsor's approval, which may have been years ago. And on top of that, a lot of times they don't have a passport or their passport has expired. Uh, and they have to request a new passport from their embassy and then take that to their initial sponsor to get his approval, who they may not have spoken to in years. It's quite a nightmare and it's quite a burden on workers just to leave the country. I mean, just this week, apparently at the uh, Indonesian embassy, there was a riot uh, that broke that's out right. with people trying to get their documents in order to get out of the country. Yeah, that's right. New sources in all of the labor sending countries, particularly in Southeast Asia. So this would be sort of India, the Philippines, Indonesia, countries like that. Essentially, their consulates and their embassies inside Saudi Arabia are completely overwhelmed with document requests. Now, kind of the motivation behind all of this is an assumption that when these people leave, it'll free up jobs for Saudi nationals. I mean, if these guest workers all leave, are are Saudis prepared to do what is quite often menial labor? I couldn't comment on that. I, I, I don't know. From our perspective, it's extremely important that Saudi Arabia... Uh, in its efforts to accommodate the unemployment issue among Saudi citizens, also take into account the human rights of the migrant worker population already present in the country. And we would call on them specifically to overhaul their labor regulation system, the kafala system or sponsorship system, to allow workers to change employers without permission. Uh, and we would also call on them to abolish completely the exit visa requirement. Adam Kugel, a Middle East researcher with Human Rights Watch. Thanks for speaking with us. Thank you for having me. Today's GeoQuiz does 0 to 60 in seconds. Greyhounds and horses are fast runners, but cheetahs are in a category of their own. They run faster than any other land animal. They'd even lap Usain Bolt. These cats can sprint 65 miles an hour, but more impressive, cheetahs can accelerate 0 to 60 in something like 3 seconds. We're going to hear from a scientist who's trying to map out cheetah biomechanics. But first, we want you to name the country where the wild cheetah study was carried out. It's a landlocked country in southern Africa. It's one of the most sparsely populated countries in the world, maybe because 70% of this country is covered by the Kalahari Desert. That should narrow it down. The answer is on the way. This is PRI. I'm Marco Werman. This is The World. Let's get back now to the fastest four-legged creature on land, the cheetah. What makes cheetahs run so fast? That question has intrigued Alan Wilson for a long time. He specializes in locomotive biomechanics at the Royal Veterinary College in the UK. Dr. Wilson, where did you go to do your study and why? Well, we were doing our field work in northern Botswana on the edge of an area called the Okavanga Delta. And we were there because there was ongoing research into predators. So there were cheetahs that were wearing tracking collars and 
I include as a veterinarian go and remove their collars and fit our collars to the cheetahs and record the data that we report in this paper. So Botswana, that would be the answer to our geo quiz today. So you put a collar on these cheetahs. Explain how you record the swiftness of, of a wild cheetah so precisely, because I'm thinking like you're a highway patrolman with one of those speed detectors. No, that's um, tricky because the cheetahs go off. We put the collar on and then they go off for a year and the data is collected automatically. Then we download the data from the collar. So the collar really is the pinnacle of 10 years of development within my lab where we're using GPS, not really the GPS you'll get in a, in a smartphone or a car sat nav, but a high accuracy GPS that gives us speed and position five times a second. And there's also accelerometers, movement sensors, gyroscopes, and magnetometers or electronic compasses. So these all combine together in the collar to give us very high accuracy and precision measurements of movement. You study locomotive biomechanics. What is the cheetah secret? So we're taking those data, we get speed, we get acceleration, we get cornering forces, and we can compare that to what we know about other animals. So the cheetah, it can run very fast. We saw close to 60 miles an hour, and this is in long grass and difficult terrain. We saw acceleration powers that were four times what Usain Bolt achieved when he ran his world record. So really remarkably high figures. But In the hunts, the cheetahs are only running at about half their maximum speed. So this idea we have a cheetah, an open grassland running really fast to capture its prey, it's not. It's not running particularly quickly. It's actually often hunting in long grass or in thick scrub and vegetation. And it's much more about manoeuvring, about turning, about acceleration and deceleration. And that is where the hunt succeeds or fails. That's where we see if it catches its prey or it fails to capture its prey. It's at the end of the hunt there. So it really is the ultimate all-round athlete, not just a speedster who can run really quickly. Does it have something in its feet or its legs, or is it just the whole body that gives it that ability to accelerate? I mean, zero to 60 in like three seconds? Oh, they're impressive animals. They've got several features. They've got really good grip. They've got these big claws that provide them a lot of grip so they can apply a lot of force to the ground. Their muscles are very, very fast and very powerful, so they can apply a lot of energy. And they can use their tails, they can use their flexible spines to twist around and put their feet where they need them to be to perform that turn, to respond to the course that the prey animal is imposing on it. The prey decides where the cheetah has to run, and the cheetah has to try and follow it. It's got a stride length of about eight metres, so it has to be able to react almost instantaneously within a stride to whatever the prey does. What's your own personal fascination with speed? I mean, my own fascination is I used to be an athlete and been interested in limits to performance, and then started working with greyhounds and racehorses. And once you're looking at that stuff, set animals that will run at 40 miles an hour to go and study an animal that apparently can run at 60 or 70 miles an hour. It's sort of, you know, it's, it's a fascinating holy grail to go and look at. Yeah. So we said earlier that uh, the cheetah is the fastest animal on land. What about air and sea? Anything top uh, 65 miles an hour? In the air, I mean, the peregrine falcon is recorded, depending on the data, certainly 150, 170 miles an hour. So mm. considerably faster. But that's in a dive, and a human being in a dive will also do 170, 180 miles an hour. So it's cheating a little bit if you allow gravity to help you. Alan Wilson, professor of locomotive biomechanics at the University of London. His research on cheetah speed is published today in the journal Nature. Dr. Wilson, thanks so much. Thank you. And we're going to end the show today with another kind of agility and grace. The world's Matthew Bell paid a visit to a ballet school for kids. It's in the West Bank city of Ramallah, the de facto Palestinian capital. 
Schoolgirls bound into the dance studio, several of them in pink tutus, and they start prancing in front of the huge mirror, telling their dance teacher they want to run through the routine they did for the Christmas recital. The stereo competes with the call to prayer from a nearby mosque, but that doesn't bother these young ballerinas in training at the Ramallah Ballet Center. 25-year-old Shireen Ziadeh opened the dance school last year. Growing up in Ramallah, she took private lessons with a Russian teacher. She says she would have loved to have a place like this as a kid. The politics here and the pressures of living under Israeli occupation, Ziadeh says, can be stressful, and ballet is a refuge. To me, having art is uh, like escaping from this, escaping from all the violence. I like to see the little kids... Um, dancing and uh, expressing what they have, the feelings they have, uh, and uh, put it in a good, uh, positive way. Ziade opened the school with financial help from her family. She's got about 35 students now and has hopes to hire other dance teachers and grow the business. At first, she says, some people didn't understand what she was trying to do here. There was even a news article attacking her for teaching little girls a racier form of dance that's known all over the Arab world. They thought that uh, ballet is uh, belly dance. So uh, they thought that we're teaching um, the kids belly dance. And they were like, uh, we don't need this in Palestine. We need girls to think about uh, education, about uh, how to fight. How... I think they were ignorant here, and that's it. But uh, anyone who knows what ballet is, I think they, they find it very pure. And I'm sure uh, everything I get is positive. It would probably be more difficult for Ziade to run a ballet school in more conservative parts of the Palestinian territories. In Gaza, for example, the Islamic group Hamas that rules the territory has cracked down on Western-style haircuts. But Ramallah is about the most cosmopolitan Palestinian city. Still, one area where Ziade feels she's fallen short is attracting boys to her dance classes. At one time, she had two brothers taking ballet, they liked it a lot, she says, but their father decided to put an end to it. Yeah, ballet is for both, for boys and girls, but uh, I think because of culture <laughs> issues, they think only ballet is uh, more for girls, because ballet is more like uh, soft and they want something more masculine. <laughs> Ziade says she never planned to make a career out of running a dance school, which is the only one she knows of in the Palestinian areas. She wanted to go to business school, maybe study abroad. But now she's too attached to her students, she says, and the idea of leaving them without a ballet teacher makes her want to stick with it. For The World, I'm Matthew Bell, Ramallah, in the West Bank. Watch some of the West Bank's budding ballerinas, some pirouettes, some pas de deux, you name it. We have video at theworld.org. From the Nan and Bill Harris Studios at WGBH here in Boston, I'm Marco Werman. Thanks for tuning in. The World is a co-production of the BBC World Service, PRI, and WGBH, supported by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, dedicated to the idea that all people deserve the chance to live healthy, productive lives. GatesFoundation.org the Rita Allen Foundation, investing in transformative ideas in their earliest stages to leverage their growth and promote breakthrough solutions to significant problems. Online at RitaAllen.org. 
and by the PRI Trust for Innovation, which enables informed risk-taking in the creation of new content for public radio. Donors to the Trust include Marguerite Steed Hoffman, the Tagney Jones Family Fund, and the Rose Family Fund. PRI Public Radio International